the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. What to say, what to say. That often is the challenge for a lot of believers as we are sharing our faith with others. Now, we know certainly that there's um, uh, sort of a dualistic component when it comes to uh, the whole matter of being a Christian. Certainly, we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, body, and soul, and our neighbor is ourself. And we are also to go and to share the good news of this gospel into all of the world. Uh, the Great Commandment and the Great Commission. And yet, for a lot of us, uh, the great... Great um, commandment. Yeah, we we can do okay with that, but we find ourselves oftentimes challenged, particularly in this day and age, in uh, fulfilling our responsibility in partaking in the sharing of the Great Commission. Um, that sense of uh, sharing your faith with someone who wishes to be combative, they want to get into an argument with you. You are fearful, perhaps, because you just don't want confrontation. You've never experienced sharing your faith with someone before, and you're afraid to open up the proverbial can of worms because there's this atheist in the next cubicle that's just been dying to pick a fight with you. How do you go about sharing your faith under these circumstances, particularly in a region like the San Francisco Bay Area where we are wrought with paganism and atheism and doubt and those that would feel as if anybody who believes in Christianity or the Jesus of the Bible must clearly be nuts. Well, Donald Johnson joins us to offer insights. He's written a new book called How to Talk to a Skeptic, an easy-to-follow guide for natural conversations and effective apologetics. And Donald, great to have you on the program tonight. Thanks for having me, Craig. I appreciate it. You come at this from a very rich educational background. I'll mention for the benefit of listeners, you have a BA in theology um, from San Jose Christian College, so you've been here in the Bay Area, an MA in Christian apologetics from Biola University, and an MA in theology from Franciscan University of Steubenville. So you've you've gone to some pretty well-known schools and received quite the deep education. Now, sharing this whole topic of apologetics, some Christians hear that and they kind of get put off and they go, oh, that that's for an expert. That is for somebody like Hank Hanegraaff or um, somebody like a Donald Johnson to engage in. I, as just the everyday average Christian, can't possibly be expected to engage a skeptic in some discourse of Christian apologetics, can I? <laughs> well, I think if you approached it that way, that you have to have the big uh, education, um, yeah, you're right. We probably wouldn't, and that's one of the uh, problems. But no, I wrote the book specifically to address people who don't have the education, who uh, don't necessarily have the conversational debating skills of a William Lane Craig or someone like that. They're not interested in getting into the combative argument. Uh, no, this is this is for people who you know have that uncle who comes over on Thanksgiving and has a lot of questions or that coworker, and it's specifically addressed to show you that yeah you can have a constructive conversation with even the most uh, hardened skeptic. And I guess at the end of the day, Don, this is not really about engaging in debate um, or demonstrating our um, uh, verbal skills at confrontation. Uh, it really comes down to that core issue of being ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within, isn't it? 
Yeah, absolutely, Craig. That's exactly when I think of apologetics. It's First Peter 3.15. It's the verse you just quoted. It's just having um, good questions and then the good answer, the, uh, the, the understanding of the Jesus story that you can share with people, but doing it in a way that's not going to lead to a dead end. So what is it about us as Christians, particularly in this day and age, and you've spent a good time here in the San Francisco Bay Area, so you're fully aware of, of some of the, the intellectual prowess of our Bay Areans here who uh, tend to um, uh, celebrate paganism and uh, atheism and, and uh, love to engage in barbed uh, debate with Christians and, and, and tear us down. Does some of this fear come out of a sense that, well, we, we're trying to avoid conflict confrontation. Um, we're, we're concerned we won't be able to articulately respond to their questions or their comments and, and maybe a good dose of our own sense of anxieties in all of this. I just wonder how much of this goes to just the heart of a lot of believers today being uh, biblically illiterate and, and finding themselves and feeling themselves unprepared to share their faith. Yeah, I think you're right. I think a lot of it is that we don't feel like we have those answers. But on the other hand, it's partially, I think, some mistakes that we make in approaching the skeptic that leads us into that defensive position. So, I mean, we're scared that we're not going to have the right answer. But I think in my approach, I've learned over the years, I mean, I used to be that guy. I used to be that guy who just liked to debate and always tried to have just the right answer and just the right comeback at, at the right time. And I learned over the years that doesn't actually usually end very well. You usually end up in a roadblock. And so now I... I stand back a little bit and ask a lot of questions at the beginning and try to listen a lot and move the, the conversation in a direction where you're not on the defensive all the time and you don't have to have all those answers. And you're actually trying to get the skeptic to do the thinking and to have some answers for their own views and how they understand the world and how they understand Christianity. So it's not so much... You're right. It's not so much that it's a battle between two people, but a constructive relationship-building conversation where both sides have to add something to the mix. Sadly, oftentimes these kinds of conversations end up in one feeling as if they have to defend the faith, meaning they're, they're, they're put on the defensive. And so here we might feel um, wholly short to answer challenges concerning uh, certain scientific points or uh, points related to uh, observations about so-called uh, errancy in Scripture, things of this sort. I mean, oftentimes we'll see this sort of distilled down by some as a debate between um, faith or science, for example, or, or the rational or irrational. So you're, you're not suggesting that we, we engage to set ourselves up for debate, but rather, what, engage a person? Is this as much about sharing our faith? Is it also getting the person that we're talking to to get them to share their heart and where they're coming from? Yeah, I think that's the key is, first of all, to, to understand where they're coming from. And so on two levels, well, really on three levels, I ask them what kind of background they have, you know, tell me a little bit about your life and if you have any experience in Christianity or the church. And then I ask them what they think uh, to be true about the world as far as uh, how do you answer the big questions of life? I understand that you reject Christianity. Okay, tell me what you do accept, though. Give me a positive case for something that you think is actually true, not just what you think is false. And then I ask them what they think Christianity actually teaches. And I think if you set out your conversation, just, just trying to find out those three 
uh, facts about the person in a very relational way and doing a lot of listening and not not defending Christianity at all, not jumping in when they throw an objection or or some sort of uh, sarcastic comment. You know, just just let that go and just listen. And what ends up happening is you can develop a comparison of worldviews. So way down the line, after you've learned a lot about the person, it's it's given you a chance to then compare the Christianity that you know to be true from the Bible with their worldview and the Christianity they hold. And and you'll inevitably find out that they don't hold to the Christianity that you do, that they're rejecting a, a, a straw man argument or they're just a caricature of what the Bible teaches. And when you set it up like that, you ask a few questions, you set up a comparison of worldviews, it actually does give you a chance to come in and then share the gospel, but not in a preachy way. You're just clarifying what Christianity actually teaches. You can say, oh, well, that's interesting. I understand where you're coming from, but let me share with you how I understand the Bible and how I understand Christianity, and then we can uh, we can talk on that level. So it's a lot of clarification and sharing the Bible or sharing the gospel then in a non-confrontational, very relational way. You use a word that I want to have you elaborate upon when we return after a timeout. You use the word relational, and I think there can be some important insights and keys extracted from this one word as we talk about how to talk to a skeptic. My guest is Donald Day Johnson. This is his new book, by the way, newly published by to put my cheaters on here, Bethany House, and you'll find it at bookstores throughout the Bay Area. Jarrell is laughing in there. Hey, you reached a certain age, kiddo, you know, you, you got to put the cheaters on. Also, the book available through Amazon.com, and uh, we'll share more in our conversation. Dig a bit deeper into this topic. How do you go about successfully sharing your faith, giving that answer for the hope that lies within as you talk to a skeptic? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Author and Christian apologist Donald Johnson with us tonight. A look at his new book, How to Talk to a Skeptic. Now, you used a word just before the break, um, Donald, that perhaps really brings this down into a core perspective that all of us need to keep in mind when we're sharing our faith with somebody else. You use the word relational or relationship. And at the end of the day, that's really what this is about, isn't it? I mean, we're, we're engaging in a relationship with another person as we are sharing our faith, as we talk about what? Our relationship with Jesus Christ in the hope of what? That someday they too will also enjoy a relationship with Jesus Christ. Makes it a lot less intimidating that way, if you put it in those terms, doesn't it? Yeah, you're absolutely right, Craig. But skeptics don't want to think of themselves as a project. And if they get the sense that the Christian views them as a project, someone to uh, defeat in a debate or even someone to get saved or, you know, an impersonal project, and that's not going to work. And so it's really important that we do sort of look at our own hearts and when we, you know, the guy in the cubicle next next to us, we do have to see him as someone loved by God and who God wants to spend eternity with, right? And so, yeah, the, the, the goal of every conversation has to be the sharing of God's love, not in a non-intellectual way. I mean, I, I know some people talk about, well, you know, you just love people till they ask you why and this sort of thing, and that's good as far as it goes. But on the other hand, I think 
providing answers and being able to direct the conversation in a way that clarifies the gospel for that person and gives that person's re- gives that person reason to believe that is also loving the person and so uh yeah it's it's all relational i think i mean ultimately god is love i mean love i've got a chapter on that that says love is the meaning of life i mean that's what it's all about and so yeah we we really do need to be loving the whatever skeptics we run into. It would be curious to see if in a study has ever been done, and I would suspect that somebody like George Barna probably has this somewhere in his library of research, of how many people uh, that we come across that may object to Christianity or put up major roadblocks to faith because they themselves um, come from a quote-unquote former religious background and maybe had some ill experience uh, in a church somewhere or um, you know just unfortunate religious experience that somehow has turned them off to their faith and therefore they become a, a staunch defender of atheism or something of that sort. Yeah, if my experience is any indication, and admittedly I'm just one guy, but I talk to a lot of skeptics, the percentage I think is really high, Craig. I mean, the, most of the um, people that call in to me or that email me and, and get in contact with me, most of them that are the hardest cases uh, I think have been hurt by the church or someone in the church. There's, there's an amazing number of ex-Christians out there that are the loudest voices for anti-Christianity. And so, yeah, that. I think it it should speak to us as Christians that we need to be uh, careful how we act, but also, I think, careful how we teach. A lot of these people come out of groups that were teaching some pretty weird things, and so they just reject the whole ball of wax, so to speak. Um, in, in rejecting something that is admittedly sort of silly, they just reject the whole thing. So, yeah, I, I would be interested to see those stats as well. Yeah, and it certainly, I think, would be very telling at the end of the day, as you point out. It's critically important to kind of keep that tucked in the back of our mind. Um, they're they're going to be looking at us, and they're going to be testing us, in a sense, to see whether or not we really believe in this faith that we talk about. Um, and, and, and toward that end, I guess it comes down to this issue of of whether or not somebody has a former religious background with an axe to grind or comes at it from a particularly neutral uh, background. Nevertheless, there's somebody that we know Christ died for. And so now it's about getting in there, and I guess at, at the, the core initially, hearing more from them. I mean, again, we kind of tend to want to start this conversation by defending the faith, but I would imagine if we're going to kind of understand where we're going to go with all of this, isn't it more important to sort of draw them out as opposed to at the get-go trying to present Present our case. Oh, absolutely. That's uh, that's key. I mean, if you go out and start to present your case, your case right away, inevitably you will miss the mark because you don't know what they believe. I mean, you're you're sort of shooting at a target that's not really there. You're talking to a person, uh, a person that you have in your mind, what you think they're like that probably doesn't exist. And so, yeah, you really need to clarify that. In the same way, like I said, they're arguing with a person that they don't really know. I mean, they, they think they know what you believe. And so, yeah, you need there needs to be a lot of sharing up front, uh, sort of clarifying positions and, and getting to know each other, I think, uh, before all of the debating takes place. Now, that's not to say that you don't um, get into a, a kind of a debate. I mean, it, towards the end of my conversations or my relationships, you know, it, it could take several months. Like, when I talk about a conversation, I'm talking about potentially several conversations with a person. But towards the end of it, yeah, we do compare worldviews and we do um, debate. But yeah, I think that needs to come later on in the interaction. 
Let's um, hop onto the phones here and get some calls in. If you've just joined us, we're visiting tonight with author and Christian apologist Donald Johnson. He's got a new book out called How to Talk to a Skeptic. Go first to Palo Alto, and we'll say good evening to Lee. Hey, Lee, welcome. You're on KFAX. Thank you so much. I have a friend of mine who is an agnostic, but he started out as Catholic, and he's the kind of agnostic that's looking for a reason not to believe rather than seeking. And I could appreciate his intelligence, and we get along. I've known him for a long time. He's very intelligent, except for when he talks about religion, in which case he doesn't make any sense at all. So I was curious, what is the gospel in a nutshell to keep my message very short? All right, good question. You want to tackle that, Donald? As far as the gospel in a nutshell, I tend to tell a quick story uh, that it's all about love. God created us for a relationship. We went chasing off after other things and other people that were not as uh, as valuable. And, and I tend to compare it to like a husband and a wife. A husband goes off chasing after something that's not as valuable, either alcohol, football, or a mistress. When he should be valuing and having a relationship with his wife, that's how I see the whole story of the world, that we are a people who were made to love God, and we've gone chasing off after things that just aren't objectively valuable. And when you do that, you live contrary to reality, then things don't go right. It's like trying to run your car on water. It's just not going to work. You can't live contrary to reality if you do things go wrong. And so I tend to focus on love and what it means to break relationship with God. And basically, I think all of the other doctrines of Christianity flow out from that basic uh, starting point. At least the good news in this case, Lee, is that you mentioned that he's an agnostic, so he's not sure, uh, which is sometimes easier than starting with a, uh, an atheist who's certain that God doesn't exist. And I guess these days that's more of a challenge. I mean, for uh, the early part of uh, the last couple of centuries, we've seen this major shift, certainly, in the 1960s and 70s, educationally and otherwise, where all of a sudden you've made that uh, transition from having to um, um, talk about our relationship uh, to God versus that God is. And I guess oftentimes we almost kind of have to use that as the starting point, don't we? I mean, how can we talk about uh, forgiveness and having offended a God if they don't even quite believe that a God exists, uh, Donald? Yeah, that's right. And that's why I generally start out, if someone says they're an agnostic, well, they're not, they don't believe nothing. <laughs> they do have a worldview. They do believe something about reality. And so I try to get them to explore that. How do you answer those big questions of life? How did we get here? Why are we here? What happens when we die? How then should we live? Everybody walks around with answers in their mind to those questions. They live according to something. And so I try to get them to explore that. You're, you're not agnostic about everything. And after they have sort of thought about that a little bit, then you can compare. All right, does that, do those answers make sense? Does that seem to match up with the world as we know it? What you're suggesting here, too, as you mentioned uh, when we came back from the break, is not necessarily a singular conversation. This may be a multiplicity of conversations. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we kind of get that impression. We we think this is a lot like, and I'm not I'm not suggesting that this never happens. Of course it does. But the I met a man on the subway one day. I said, you know, do you know where you're going to go when you die? No, I don't. And that ensued into a following conversation. By the time we got to the next uh, train depot, bus stop, uh, taxi stand, you know, in, insert location here, uh, he had had prayed the sinner's prayer. That does happen. Uh, but not as often as we would think. And generally, most of the people that we're going to run into that we're going to have an opportunity to share with are going to be people with whom we have some kind of ongoing contact, if not relationship. It's either the guy in the cubicle next door or the kid who delivers the newspaper or the young man who takes us out to the car every time we buy groceries and helps us bring the bags to the car, et cetera, et cetera. And so which case then, as you point out, and it dawns on me, uh, Donald, we did not come to these positions in life overnight. And so we're not necessarily going to abandon them overnight. So this is, in a sense, a process. So if it doesn't go well the first time or that one certain conversation didn't quite end in the fashion in which you hoped it would, there's always the next time, isn't there? That's an excellent point, Craig. Yeah, we, we tend to want to reduce the gospel to that elevator pitch, right? Like, yeah. give it to me in the 30 seconds we have. And really, I mean, that's, I mean, I get that. I understand that. But yeah, real life doesn't generally happen that way. <laughs> you, you are building relationships with people. You're, you're talking to them over time. And yeah, I, I totally agree that you, you should be able to um, spread this out and not force your apologetic argument even or your, or your evangelistic presentation into that elevator pitch necessarily. Our conversation with author and Christian apologist Donald Johnson. The book, How to Talk to a Skeptic. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We continue our conversation tonight. Donald Johnson, my guest. The book is called How to Talk to a Skeptic. You know, at the end of the day, we talk about sometimes dealing with, with the, the hardline, almost professional skeptics, uh, Donald. Uh, I'm thinking of those in the class of uh, uh, Christopher Hitchens, uh, Richard Dawkins, Bill Maher, even on that list. But it's interesting. I've heard some of them debated or some of the arguments that they put forward. And I've often thought to myself, you know, at the end of the day, it's not only Christians that are the ones that have to defend their views. These guys come out with some pretty outlandish comments as well. Yeah, no, you're right. They uh, not only do they have to defend their worldview, and you're right. I don't think they do a terribly good job of it. And, and often they're not asked to, which is interesting. Most of the time, if you notice how those guys debate, is they debate against Christianity. They're not usually asked to present a positive case for materialism or whatever it is they happen to hold. And, and that's one key, I think, to talking to, to either professional skeptics or the uh, uncle or the guy next door in the cubicle, is that they should be asked to have present their worldview, to think about it probably. I mean, a lot of times people haven't thought about it, and then defend that. And that's a real key to having a constructive uh, conversation, I think, is that you have to think about what you believe in a positive way, not just be anti-Christian. And a lot of them are anti-Christian. We talked prior to the break with the previous caller about this whole issue of, of, of the agnostic out there. And I guess in this day and age, what with uh, uh, recent discoveries related to the so-called God particle, um, irreducible design, uh, things like um, intelligent design, uh, that there's more and more scientific information out there, too, that also lends credence uh, to, to the so-called Genesis account. Does that also stand in our favor in terms of sharing our faith and making a case for the existence of God? 
Yeah, I think the evidence, wherever you find it, is always in the Christian's favor. Because if it's true, it's true. And Christianity happens to be true about all of the universe. So wherever we find truth, whether that's through scientific investigation or philosophy or psychology or wherever it is, that truth is, if it's accurate, if they're not just making stuff up or presenting false claims, obviously, but if it's accurate, it's going to line up with the Christian worldview. And so, yeah, we never be never need to be afraid of new discoveries, you know. The truth, wherever it's found, is going to match up. And, and I think that's one key to having a good conversation is to not... You know, sometimes we present it as, well, I mean, there's these facts over here, but I just take on faith that Jesus is my Savior. And by that I mean I put my brain in my back pocket, and I don't have to think about it anymore, and I don't have any evidence for it, but I just believe. Well, no, that, that's not the Christian way, I don't think. God, God loves uh, presenting evidence to us, and he gives us plenty of it. Uh, yeah, at, the, at the end of the day, Christianity is not some irrational belief system that we just adopt totally by faith, whether or not it might be uh, some fact here or there. I mean, the ir- irony is, if we just take the time to do the research, um, we find all kinds of extra-biblical um, uh, information uh, from the archaeological accounts and historical accounts that lead credence to the teachings of what we learn from the Bible. Yeah, absolutely. Every realm of of discovery, I think, uh, should be embraced by the Christian. Um, And so, yeah, I mean, science is a good one. Archaeology is excellent, and it consistently confirms the biblical accounts. Whenever um, science is done right, and and I guess that's a key. I mean, sometimes science is presented as a philosophy rather than a a, uh, mode of, of gathering knowledge. And so they say, well, science has disproven God. But what they mean by that is there is nothing that exists besides matter, and that's all we... Well, no, I mean, we can't accept that. But in general, yeah, every sort of of, uh, knowledge-gathering endeavor that humans do, it's going to line up with Christianity, and so we can embrace that. What do we do with comments uh, such as the person who says, well, I've done some studying of Christianity, and I find that there are uh, pagan myths and accounts of this sort that are made up out of the mystic world that seem to be similar to some things that I read in the Gospels, so why should I believe what the Bible says any more than a pagan myth? Yeah, that's a good question, and that's a very popular objection these days, and becoming more so, it seems. Uh, what I like to do is, first of all, clarify, all right, what parallel myth are you talking about? Let's let's look at the data and see what the facts actually are. And then some guys, they do just stop there, and, and that's fine. I mean, they try to disassociate Christianity from all the pagan myths. Actually, how, the, the approach I take is that I embrace a lot of the parallels that are out there. I say, yeah, you know what, there's, there's some parallels. I mean, uh, there's some pagan myths that are uh, similar in some respects to the Christian worldview. But I say that's actually to be expected, I think, if Christianity is true. Because according to Christianity, God is the creator of all. He put Adam and Eve in the garden, and then humanity spread out from there. So, And he's revealed himself, Romans 1 assures us, that no one is left without knowledge of God. So we have this general revelation to all people at all times. If that's true, it makes sense that when people try to explain reality through their myths, that there would actually be some parallels, that they're, if, they're, if they're interacting with an objective reality, and that is the God of the Bible, that there would be some similarities. And so I take sort of a C.S. Lewis, G.K. Chesterton approach to this and say, those myths are a precursor, they're a shadow. It's not that Christianity took the stories from those myths, it's that those myths actually took their stories from Christianity. It's the other way around. And so Christianity is this, the actual story, the true story, the historical story, God in time and space. And the myths 
are the shadows that are uh, they, they come from that, I think. And so, yeah, I, I take sort of a, a broader approach to that, embrace the truths that we can embrace with people, and then try to show them that, well, Christianity is not like, it's not the same as those myths. I mean, it's history. Jesus appeared as a man in Galilee 2,000 years ago. So that that's, you know... A hard fact. What but. about those that take the dismissive approach to say, "Well, you know, I've I've seen the way these Christians act. They behave fairly badly. I've seen the hypocrisy within Christianity, and uh, I don't go to church because I don't want to be a hypocrite." What of that argument? Yeah, that's a common one, and I think uh, on one hand you can sort of uh, take a coldly logical approach and say, <laughs> say you well, agree. <laughs> yeah, of course, yeah, you agree. Hey, uh, you know we're all sinners; we're all hypocritical at some point. Uh, but that's what Christianity teaches. Christianity doesn't teach that we're all perfect, and that you know if if Christianity is true, then all people will be perfect. I mean, you don't see that anywhere in the Bible. We're sinners saved by grace and and uh, being transformed into the likeness of Christ. But that's an ongoing process. And so, on one hand, I mean, logically, it's not a very sound argument. I think just sort of emotionally and psychologically, you want to just embrace that and say, you know what, I've hurt people, I've been hurt by people, I mean, that's how... That's how life is, and I apologize if that works, you know, on behalf of my fellow Christians. But really, that doesn't speak to Jesus. I mean, certainly Jesus didn't teach us to do that, right? And Jesus wasn't like that. So let's talk about Jesus uh, and and see if, if... his message resonates. It's amazing when you think about it um, in the arena of Christian uh, apologetics, uh, how logical so much of this is if you just bring it back to the core issue of being relationship centric. And as we mentioned a couple of segments ago, at the end of the day, that's really what this is all about anyway. You're not trying to create animosity. You're trying to build a relationship and you wish to build a relationship to share your faith in the hopes that the person that you're sharing with will sometime or some they have a relationship with Jesus, too. And so when you look at it from that angle, then this becomes uh, far less about trying to win my point or beat you down or, uh, you know, be the winner of the forensic uh, team, but rather to simply love a person to the saving knowledge of Christ. The book, How to Talk to a Skeptic, published again by Bethany House and available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, as well as through Amazon.com. And our thanks to author Donald Johnson, also a Christian apologist, for being with us tonight and offering some great insights. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. You know, when you think of a lot of the challenges that our nation has been facing for the last couple of three years, um, you know, unemployment situations, uh, loss of homes because of a foreclosure, uh, you know, it, it's easy to get discouraged, certainly to kind of live in that that place that's sort of permanent disappointment. And yet out of all of that, particularly for Christians, how do we we be uh, sort of adequately rise up and, and, and above all of that so we can go on with life and, and enjoy victory in our relationship with Christ. Well, that topic uh, centers around the title of a new book written by my next guest. Uh, You'll recognize her as having been the uh, Emmy Award winning co-host of Aspiring Women on uh, KTLN here in the San Francisco Bay Area. She's written a number of best-selling books, in fact, over 30 to her credit, including her latest, How to Get Past Disappointment, Finding Hope. And Michelle McKinney-Hammond, Michelle, great to have you on the show. Hi, how are you? I'm doing well, thanks. Boy, this uh, this is a timely topic. So many people are just dealing with that kind of overall biting sense of disappointment of what's going on. They've, you know, life can be tough enough, and then when you add to it the economy and so on and so forth, yes. I think a lot of people kind of get stuck in that place and they don't know how to get out. Yes, yes. 
because they begin to see cycles in their lives and it, it leads to the, to the deception that this is all life has to offer and well I should just settle in and, and not expect more than where I am and then we begin to to make choices that sink us even lower into into that place you know and then I wonder, as that process is kind of taking place, um, if there needs to be a change in our thinking. You know, I think there are some Christians who, who move into that position of defeat and disappointment, and they kind of, you know, kind of conclude that it's here, it's here to stay, so I have to learn to live with disappointment, right. as opposed to learning from disappointment and then moving on back into victory. Right. Because every disappointment, you know, a friend of mine um, all describes disappointment as a disappointment uh, in the sense that we make appointments in life for ourselves, decisions of, of what should be or how things should go. And when the other people don't meet us there, the other parties involved don't meet us there, we feel dissed, we feel um, cast off, um, and it just really invites a spirit of rejection that lowers our self-esteem and, and literally paralyzes us. Um, so that we do get stuck, as you said. And a lot of it, I think, then comes down to misguided expectations. I mean, let's think for a moment about people. Mm-hmm. How often do we live in that position of disappointment because our son, our daughter, our husband, our wife, uh, our parents uh, did something or behaved in a fashion that disappointed us, and now all of a sudden we're, we're kind of stuck in that defeat position? Yeah, yeah. It's true. And, and, and you know, life is, is a greater thing than that. And so we really cannot base... Uh, how, the conclusions that we make on life based on what people did or didn't do. It has to be come from a, a deeper place. And that's why I use the, uh, the woman at the well um, as an example um, in this book, How to Get Past Disappointment, because she had been through a cycle of disappointments that led her to the conclusion that that was all life had to offer for her. And, and the danger in that is that when we get so jaded by our disappointments, we can't recognize the blessing when it does present itself. And, you know, what's amazing about that story is that um, e- even as, as Jesus meets with her, mm-hmm. he knows exactly what's going on. Oh, yeah. You know, we, we, I think, sometimes think that we can kind of hide that. We try to mask those feelings mm-hmm. instead of coming to the terms with them or instead of dealing with the root cause of what is behind the disappointment and sometimes the role that we play because maybe we've gotten our eyes focused more on the person or the situation instead of keeping our eyes focused on Christ. Mm-hmm. And, and maybe as we're, you know, kind of trying to keep up fronts, you know, keep up appearances, and yet Jesus fully knows what's going on, doesn't he? He does, you know, and, and, and what I think is important for, for listeners to know is that despite your bad choices, um, your seeming failures, or even uh, the contributions you think you've made to your life being the way you are, Jesus makes an appointment with all of us. I mean, Jesus went to that well to meet that woman on purpose. It was a purposeful decision to be there that day when she got there. Um, And I think that he... Um, is just as purposeful with meeting us in those places of disappointment. He has an appointment to meet us there, um, to show us another way, to show us another wellspring, another area of fulfillment um, that will bring about uh, what we've been thirsting for. I don't think that she even realized how deep her disappointment was until he started pushing her buttons and uh, getting her to see that there was an option. You know, so many people that I talk to who are disappointed feel they don't have any other option. Um, I was just talking to um, a friend of mine the other day on the phone, and 
uh, another failed relationship and she said well here I am alone again um, and I don't think I'll ever have anyone I said well maybe you don't have anyone today but don't feel that because that person rejected you that you have no options you have options and as a matter of fact uh, we exercise those options every day. I mean, I always tell single people, you're alone because you want to be alone. Because there are people that you de- decided that you did not want to have in your life. Mm. You know, so don't don't say that you know. Oh, you 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 are the helpless person in this. No, you've had options that you chose not to exercise. So you are single by choice. How to Get Past Disappointment, Finding Hope. The title of her new book, newly published again by Harvest House and available through Amazon.com, as well as through Bay Area Christian bookstores and bookstores overall. Uh, Michelle, as we talk about sort of realigning our, our expectations, talk to me about the process of moving from from fear to hope in in the backdrop of dealing with circumstances, sometimes of our own creation, sometimes beyond our control. But nevertheless, how do we go about making that transition from fear to hope? Well, it really is taking taking our eyes off of what we consider the source to seeing the root of the issue because the disappointments in our lives are really the fruit that emanate from a root. And I, I think that a lot of times we live on the surface and, and we only deal with what we see versus what we don't see. Uh, when we look at the conversation that took place between Jesus and the woman at the well, we find out that the issue was deeper than her desire to be loved by these men. It really was a great need for God. Almost a crying out in a sense. Yes, yeah. yes. Uh, you know, she was trying to fill a void uh, with, the, to the best of her ability with something that was natural, not knowing that what she needed was supernatural. Um, and, and, and it's very interesting because there's a very subtle uh, conversation that happens uh, when she tells Jesus, you know, this water that you're talking about, I want it because I'm tired of being thirsty and I don't want to have to come back here again. And I think that a lot of us are that way. We're tired of longing and we don't want to keep revisiting the same issue over and over again in our lives. And he says, I'll give it to you, um, you know, go and get your husband and now we get down to, to the nitty-gritty of confessing where we really are. She says, I don't have a husband. Well, I mean, she probably had been saying she had a husband. She was living with a man, according to the scripture. And he says, you've told the truth. And he congratulates her on it. He says, you've done well to tell the truth. So um, we know that the word says that the truth is what makes us free. It gives us the tools we need to, to get beyond where we are. And uh, so he congratulates her. He's very gracious with her and says it's true that you don't have a husband. You've had five, and the one you're with now is not yours. So what he was bringing up was, here's this cycle that you've had in your life. And, and you, you've had five, five, six men, and you're still thirsty. You know, what have we continued to do and still felt the same longing, the same disappointment, even though we thought we were applying solutions to our to our longings and desires? And I think that the light went on in her head because even though she perceived him to be a prophet, the question that she asked him was not about the men. It wasn't about, will those relationships work out? It was, how could she get to God? Because obviously the men had never been enough. And I say that what God is saying to all of us in the middle of our disappointments is, look to me so that I can show you the source of fulfillment. Look to me so I can give you the wisdom to find a better way to exercise different options in your life that bring about the victory that you desire. 
And, you know, you put it so well because so often this ends, ends up being a product of having put our trust, our faith, our hope and desire on something other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, most definitely. And, and he must be. You know, he says, I am the rewarder of those who diligently seek me. And then he says something even more spectacular. He says, at my right hand are pleasures evermore. I am your exceeding and great reward. And the reward is the pleasure of being in my company. Because when I come into your life, I bring everything that you've been looking for. And all of those solutions are found in me. He, he's the one who gives us the wisdom uh, to, to gain the things that he knows we want. He's not opposed to us having what we want. But he wants to add what we need to the ball game too, yeah. and sometimes we don't recognize that. I don't think that uh, that woman didn't even know why. We don't know, you know, the the inside scoop on all those relationships. He said she had had five husbands. So if he said five husbands and then differentiated that the one she was with was not hers, that means she had five legitimate husbands. What happened to them? Did they divorce her? Did they abuse her? Did they leave her? Did they die? We do not know. But out of it came a vow, obviously, that she was not going to put herself in the position to be disappointed again, and she made a bad choice. She made a choice that she thought would put her in the position of power by simply living with someone so that she could not be abandoned again. And we do that. We, we prop ourselves up and we begin to make compromises that we think are guarding our hearts, but it really puts us in the position for greater pain. We appreciate so much, uh, Michelle, the insights. I know a lot of this comes from your own life experience, and, and I'll let readers get a copy of the book to uh, to get more details on that. Meanwhile, again, um, How to Get Past Disappointment, Finding Hope, published by Harvest House and available through Amazon.com and certainly at uh, Bay Area bookstores. Also information on the web at MichelleHammond.com. That's M-I-C-H-E-L-L-E, MichelleHammond.com. Michelle, thanks again so much for your time. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to KFAX.com. That's KFAX.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time round, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.